There's bills to pay. There's debt that needs to be thought of. There's retirement. There's college and kids' savings and a new car that needs to be added to our family sometime soon. Hint, hint. I'm just telling you, church. But there are financial burdens that I carry along with me. And there are uh, those children that can be a part of my burden. Now, modern parents know, I'm a modern parent, modern parents know that we have to be completely devoted to never being angered, always being patient, and be completely committed to giving our children everything they ever want or need, right? And that's part of my burden as a modern parent. Sometimes the burden of my children leads me to think that something could go bad wrong with them. They, they themselves could make bad choices. Children can be a burden for me. Uh, they can present problems. Uh, children, are, they're, they're creatures that I have to control. And the older I get, the more difficult that becomes. Tread tenderly on this one, but marriage can be a part of the burden that I carry. Uh, I have to control my spouse, and the older she gets, the harder it is to control her. I have thoughts about, burdens about uh, my future. I don't know what the future holds, do you? Outcomes are uncertain. It's very hard to predict what can be next. And uh, some of you may not realize this, but the sermon I taught last Sunday from here uh, about fear, about the critical inner voice, about the what-if syndrome that can be like that black hole sucking us into its vortex, that, that can be true in my own mind at times. And I can, I can worry about my future, just the doggone uncertainty of it all. And of course, adding to the burden can even be uh, the past, things that I've done that I look back and I feel, I feel guilty about. I wish I, I wish I could have it back. I wish I could do things differently. All these I carry around with me, burdens. I know it's almost Easter, but I was thinking just a, a few months ago back at Christmas and how extra crazy the Christmas season was for me. I don't know if it was for you. And I was thinking the irony of that, that a season that's supposed to be for us, a time of joy and peace and light and levity, uh, has so much burden to it. It has so many added responsibilities, people to see, places to go, invitations uh, that we get. Uh, I received a lot of Christmas cards, didn't you? And it just, it, it, it touted uh, what was going on in, in your families and, uh, you know, kids that all got into Harvard and, and dogs that all went on short-term mission trips and photos of the whole family dressed in white linen clothing on the beach on vacation. Everybody got along with everybody else. It just made me want to puke. And it just seemed to add to the burdens that I was carrying around because I just don't seem to be so pristine and perfect like some of you in your Christmas cards. I got a call three days before Christmas from a woman inviting me over to her house for a Christmas event party on Christmas Day. And when I said no to her, she started trying to guilt me into coming. And I, I yelled at her in response to that. And I hung up and I felt bad because it was my mom and all. But I, I just, <laughs> I carry burdens, don't you? There's just, when life should be about celebration and festival, when it ought to be about worship, I carry concerns. And when I wake up and it says 100% chance of rain and shady parking at times, it makes me carry another burden. But this morning, I want to tell you, there once was a man who lived an unhurried, unburdened life. 
He spoke of a peace that he gives, a joy that he wants to offer to everybody that's willing to come to him. It wasn't, he wasn't unhurried and unburdened because he didn't have responsibilities. In fact, his responsibilities were staggering. But he was so connected to his heavenly father. And when he spoke to his friends, his closest friends, he said to them things like, I give you a peace, not as the world gives, but I give you a peace that, that, that'll fill your heart. It'll, it's a peace that's different from the world, but it'll, you can anchor yourself in this peace, the peace that I give you. I'm teaching you all of these things so that you might have joy and that your joy might be full. That's what he said, this man. Oprah never said it. Steve Jobs never said that. Freud never said it. The psychology department at Millsaps never said anything like that. And when Jesus said it to those closest to him, none of them said, oh, wait, wait, wait. We see you. We see how you live. And you're just as stressed out and wound up and bound down as we are. You have all the multiplied, amplified burdens that we carry. You carry them too and you're just like us. None of them thought that because this man, he lived differently. And this morning I want to set a passage up on the screens. Technically they're on the walls. It's an invitation that Jesus issues that some of you know. In fact, I know one of you that we baptized, it's from Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. We baptized someone recently, and they said, Robert, this is my life passage. And I said, it's a good one. Jesus said, come to me. I love that next little word. Would you say it out loud? Come to me who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They say that's the first sign of a cult when a guy raises his hand and people speak after him. You don't want to do that. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me. The invitation that Jesus gives to stop. Remember Psalm 4610, some of you be still and know that I am God. It doesn't say strive. It doesn't say fight in your own strength. It says be still. Be still and know. Be still and know that I'm God. What can this, what can this invitation mean this morning if you carry burdens around? What could it mean in your life? When Jesus issued this, he knew who was within earshot. He knew that there were some around him that were trying really hard to please him. There were a couple of characters named James and John who were trying to be great in the kingdom. They were trying to stand out. They wanted to be special. There were religious people who were keeping all of the laws down to the very jot and tittle every little iota they were keeping. And Jesus says, it's, it's not enough. All your straining and striving and you fall short. What you need to do is come to me. What does a life look like, according to Jesus, according to this passage, if we come to him? Jesus is essentially asking, if you think about it, he's asking a few key questions here. Do you feel weary 
Is your load too heavy? Are you tired of carrying the weight? Does your soul need rest? There's a lady in the New York Harbor. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? She stands out, a gift from France. Big woman, drawing a lot of attention. And there's a crown, and on the crown there are seven points to the crown of the Statue of Liberty, the lady in the harbor. And on this crown, the seven points seem to beckon to call out to the seven seas and the seven continents. And on this lady in the New York Harbor, there is a tablet, and on the tablet is written, there's the inscription of the date of the Declaration of Independence. And at her feet, there's a chain that's been loosened that gives ceremony to the idea that the tyranny of the oppressed, it, it has been broken free, that this is a land of freedom, a land of new opportunity. And a woman named Emma Lazarus wrote a beautiful poem that some of you may have had to at least memorize chunks of it in grade school one day. But she talks about, she says it's an open invitation, and it says, bring me what? Do you know this? Bring me your, your weak and your poor and your tired. Bring me the huddle masses yearning for freedom. It's an invitation. But I ask you, are we free? Have, have things been loosened in your life? What about the burden that you carry. Tom is a 39-year-old dentist. He's good at what he does. He's got a long waiting list of patients to see him. He's got a good wife at home and a couple of kids. They love hanging out with their dad when they ever get to see him. But he's gone so long for so hard, he's sunk into a severe depression. His doctor tells him that his serotonin levels are just shot. He's basically, he's baked his brain and he really may not be able to function without medication. Jill is a 33-year-old homemaker and a mother of three. She rises first in the morning. She gets up early. She prepares breakfast, packs lunches, picks up the messes, carpools the kids. Her day is full of work and responsibility. She leads a Bible study at church. She mentors a couple of young girls. They praise her. They depend on her. But she's lost her zest. She's lost that zeal. She's lost that spiritual glow that Romans 12 talks about. She no longer shares her faith. She doesn't radiate with joy. Jill has lost her joy. When the kids laugh and play, she tells them to be quiet, except that's not the word she uses. Kyle's a 44-year-old pastor, budgeting, building fun, calendaring, conflict, preaching, marriage prep, hospital visits. Oh, by the way, he's got a family of four at home. His adrenal gland is fatigued. He is at a low point in his life, but he can't admit it because he's a spiritual leader and people look to him. He pastors others, but nobody pastors him. And Kyle starts thinking back at seminary 
about the guys who came on with him who are no longer standing. And it seems like ministry these days, is, it's like an MMA fight. The last one standing wins, but Kyle's about to fall. He went to see a natural, naturopathic doctor who recommended vitamins and minerals and supplements in a whole new lifestyle. He went to a conventional doctor who recommended medication for ulcers and high blood pressure and acids for his stomach. You look at Tom, you look at Jill, you look at Kyle, you look around the room, and you wonder, Americans, are we free? Have chains been loosened? Take a self-test, if you will. If your burdens are too great, you'll answer yes to, to some of these. I live on caffeine. I'm constantly irritable. I'm easily depressed. I drive aggressively. I shop compulsively. I eat emotionally. My brain is tired. I forget things easily. I'm a pessimist. I don't see things getting any better. I have aches in my neck, my muscles, my, my back. My chest is tightening. Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary, and what's the promise does he say? He uses a really good word. He says, I will give you what, church? You remember? I will give you, what does he say? I told you not to do that when I raised my arm now. He says, I will give you rest. And for a moment, I want to consider a few passages in Scripture that talk about this idea of rest. We see it early on. How early? How about Genesis early? How about Genesis 2 early? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now we got a room full of folks on a rainy day. I bet everybody in the room already knew this, right? God created and God rested. But have you thought deeply? Have you pondered why did God rest? Did he get tired? Was his energy drained? Had he, you marathon runners, had he hit a wall of fatigue? Was he at mile 20 and just thought, I can't go on any further? God, did God not carb load enough? Was, was God given a very futuristic shout out to Truett Cathy and Chick-fil-A and saying, take Sundays off. God has all strength. He's got all power. He is our omni-God. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's all-powerful. It's all within his hands. The whole world is in his hands. Why did God rest? Do you want to take a guess? Turn to the person next to you and, and give them your theory of why God rested. Would you do that? No? Okay. How many of you sit, you're sitting next to someone that got the answer wrong? Just raise your hand and point over so we'll know which side. I don't know if they're left or right, okay? Why did God rest? It's really easy. He rested to demonstrate his love to us. He rested as an example. He rested to show us that there is a rhythm to life. There's this rhythm and he wants in all due respect to Gloria Estefan, the Miami Sound Machine, he wants the rhythm to get you. 
He wants you and I to get caught up in the rhythm of life and to understand the value of work. Moses prayed, establish the work of my hands. Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as unto the Lord. It's good to work, isn't it? And it's so needed for us to rest. Consider this other passage from Psalm 132. For the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He has desired it for his home. This is what? This is my resting place forever. Now there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of metaphor that we won't get into it. He said, I will live here for this is the home I desire. I will bless this city and make it prosperous. I will satisfy its poor with food. Now leave that up there for just a minute, Jay. Here's God. And some of you have different versions. I think we put up the New Living Translation. I usually opt for the English Standard Version. But here in the New Living Translation, it has some beautiful words. And it says that God is saying, here is a a resting place for me. Uh, Some versions say God sits. Throughout Scripture, we are told that God sits. Now, that might seem a little discomforting for some, right? God sits because when you sit, you tend to go a little more passive. Some of you are sleeping right now. When you have a a sitting posture, there's less engagement, right? At least for us, but not in Scripture. In fact, we were studying about a year ago, walking through 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, it says that Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's a good thing because the Bible says that he's our advocate. That's a a legal term. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. John, the beloved disciple, has given you and I a picture that Jesus is at the right hand seated and he is saying to the Father, their sin, I'm their advocate and their sin, it's on me. They are freely forgiven because of what I have done. The Bible says that it's a dwelling place that, that God sits. Now think about it about in our modern day, think about a president. When, when someone, when a candidate runs for office, we say that, that we say they ran for office. And if they win, they occupy or dwell in the White House. Specifically, it's common to say they sit in the Oval Office. I was reading a book about Teddy Roosevelt, about his presidency. He worked himself to the bone. He worked his staff to the bone. People loved him and, and people hated him. Uh, when he was leaving the White House, someone gave him a toast, someone who disagreed with his physical policy. And he was going on an African safari. When he left Washington, he was heading to Africa. And at this toast, someone stood up in front of everybody and Teddy Roosevelt himself, and they, they rang the glass and said, health to the lions. And, you know, when we leave, when a president leaves office, oftentimes they leave limping. They leave worn out. But the scripture is is saying, and we know that when someone sits in the Oval Office, they occupy, they dwell. It's when their administration, their reign, their leadership begins. It's interesting that God, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, that he is a resting God. From beginning to end, we see this. He sits, he occupies, he dwells on a throne. Now the Bible tells us, and I'm grateful for this, the psalmist says in a later passage that he neither sleeps nor slumbers. You see, the resting, the sitting, the dwelling, the occupying of God on the throne is not disengagement, but it's engagement. And God is saying to us, he's saying to us, don't try to control everything. 
Don't try to micromanage the universe. I've got it. Some of you do that, you know. You do. We know who you are. Hebrews chapter 4 says this about rest. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. There's something out there in our future like we've never known it before. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall, go back. Let us do our best to enter that rest. You see the writer of Hebrews, many people think it's Paul. We're not 100% sure, but the writer of Hebrews is saying that this is not just a Sabbath rest because when Jesus came, remember the religious people were getting on to him about the Sabbath when he healed a paralytic's arm on the Sabbath or they asked him trick questions about do you do work and Jesus was trying to get them to understand the spirit of the law that man was created for Sabbath, not Sabbath for man. And he wanted them to understand this idea that ultimately Jesus is the Sabbath. Ultimately, he is the rest. Now, isn't that a curious little expression? Uh, So let us do our best. The one version says, make every effort. Make every effort to enter God's rest. Now, that seems, effortful rest seems to me to be like an oxymoron, doesn't it? You guys understand that oxymoron, two things are put together side by side and it just doesn't seem to be true. Can you think of some oxymorons? Civil war, pretty ugly, awfully good. That's a good Southern expression. It's awful good. Adult male. There's a lot of oxymorons. You put them together, effortless rest. It just doesn't seem... It doesn't seem to go together. And here's what I'm learning. I'm learning that I've got to be very intentional about entering into the rest that Jesus gives. I can't just go to the backyard, lie on a hammock, not that we have one, and get some country time lemonade and sip that lemonade and kick my feet up necessarily and enter into God's rest but I have to I have to be intentional about it and here's what I'm learning that Sabbath is just as much about what I don't do as what I do and I've scoured the scriptures I've looked at every book I've I've looked at it topically I've tried to find somewhere in the Old or New Testament, the Sabbath is introduced in Genesis. Jesus completes it. The writer of Hebrews talks about the future and the ultimate rest. But nowhere in all the scripture does it tell us what we ought to do on the Sabbath. But it tells us what we ought not to do and we ought not to work. We ought not to strive. We just need to rest. And that's tough. I think it's tougher today in a TGIF world. Twitter, Google, Instagram, and Facebook. TGIF. It's more about what I don't do than what I do. To unplug and to listen to him. And I want to share with you just four real quick contrasts of what's been turning over in my mind when it comes to Sabbath rest and experiencing Jesus in a more intimate way. The first one is this, enduring or enjoying. C.S. Lewis says that Joy is the serious business of heaven. Don't you like that? 
I mentioned earlier in John 15, Jesus said, I'm teaching you these things so that you might have joy and that your joy might be complete. Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 9 and verse 7, eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with joy. We just said that in the Baptist church, didn't we? Drink your wine with joy. Experience the goodness of God. Nehemiah chapter 8 says what? He says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. In John chapter 16 and verse 22, I love this. Jesus says, I want you to know my joy and nobody will be able to rob you of the joy that I give. 1 Timothy 6, 17 says, God has given us richly all things to enjoy. What does that mean? Some of you who like to guilt some of us need to hear this. It means God gives us things to enjoy. Now for a moment, if you have something, a tablet or a notebook or pen, then, then make a doodle, make a drawing. Consider this right in front of your lap. If you don't, if you will with me, just close your eyes for a second. And picture a bucket. Picture a bucket and at the top of this bucket, there's a line and it says F and that stands for full. And at the bottom of that bucket, write this again, write this or picture this, but at the bottom of that bucket, there's a line and that line says E and that means empty. And your life is an emotional bucket. And when you are empty, let me ask you, how is your life? When you're depleted of joy and the gifts of God. When you sit down to eat, you're, you're eating it like a dog at a bowl. Not, you're not savoring the delicacies. You're not with friends or family or loved ones. There's just not a lot of joy in your life. You're depleted. And when you're on E, when your emotional bucket is on empty, you're not at your best. Think about when, you're on, when your bucket is not full. What are the prayers that you pray? What about your worship? What about your fellowship? What about your courage in life? What about all the virtues that God wants to build into you? When you're, when you're depleted emotionally, probably those who love you the most see you the least. And when they see you, they may not want to be with you. Now, conversely, Picture or write, if you will, that line that's full. What's your life like when your bucket is full? When you are savoring the blessings that God gives you, when you're richly enjoying the bounty from his hands. Now, if you would, note takers, if you have a paper or a tablet, do this. If not, just try to do it in your head. But what are the things that fill your emotional bucket? What are the things that give you life? I wrote mine down this week, time with my wife, time with my other wife, no, time with my family, <laughs> being outdoors, watching my dog run and swim, running, I'm starting to do that again, I need to run. I'm an extrovert, any surprise there? My emotional bucket gets full when I hang out with people. I was talking to a pastor the other day who does some weddings like I do. He doesn't go to any of the wedding rehearsals. I go to the wedding rehearsals. I go to the wedding rehearsal dinners. I eat your food for free. I bring my wife. It's a great date night. It's just smart economics, but I love to be around people. And I'm with, when I'm with you, most of you, you bring me life. 
I love that. But the odd thing about me, and it's been, it's been calisthenics, mental calisthenics, calendaring calisthenics for all of my adult life, but I also love to read. And if I'm not nourishing my mind in Scripture, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, hearing God's Word, if I'm not reading a classic or contemporary book that brings nourishment and sheds light on truths that God has given us, then I, I get depleted. I'm a student and my mind needs to be stimulated. Those are things that give me life. How about you? You know what depletes my emotional bucket? Meetings, administration, details, conflict. Those things just drain me. I got to be careful. But here's what I want to say to you this morning. Someone taught me this not too long ago, that you're, that bucket that you've written down, you drew a diagram, or you, you pictured it in your mind, that bucket leaks. It, it constantly leaks of life. It's why when Paul wrote in Romans 12, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, and he talks about uh, let your love be genuine and sincere without hypocrisy. Love what is good, hate what is evil, cling together. He says, don't be lacking in, in your zeal. Have a spiritual glow about you. He knew that you and I would have to be intentional about not letting our buckets drain. This morning, I want to ask you in this Simplify series, are you getting joy out of life? It's the serious business of heaven. Or are you simply enduring? Another one quicker, quicker. Attainment or atonement. Few things are more uncomfortable than watching somebody try too hard to make people like them. And Christ says to us, you're attaining, you're trying your work and your efforts for excellence, to be so driven, to be so greedy, to try to climb so high and go so far. It falls short. It's, it's atonement. I was reading about Bob Hope recently. Bob Hope was asked in the latter part of his life, You're, you've been entertaining the masses for 50 years plus years why don't you just go fishing and Bob Hope replied the fish don't applaud and do you know that for some of us that's what we we long for and the message of the gospel the way to begin to simplify your life and mine is to realize that it's not so much what we attain, it's the atonement. Now that could be for some of you a fancy theological word that's outside of your realm of comprehension. That just means Jesus died for you. He died so that you might live. And in two weeks in this room, in a glorious way, we're gonna celebrate Easter. We're gonna celebrate the atonement and the life that Jesus gives through his death and through his resurrection. A third thing I wanna present to you this morning is gravity or levity. We get gravity, don't we? That's just the physical laws. It's when you're an aging, a weak preacher and you bring up a heavy backpack, it just kind of pulls you down, right? If we uh, drop something, that's, that's gravity. 
We understand the physical laws, but levity has to do with spiritual laws. It has to do with your hope for the future. Paul said there are three great virtues in 1 Corinthians, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Levity is understanding that a lot of things that we think matter don't really matter. Is there a lightness to your life? Is there room for laughter? There's a story about a 19th century immigrant who came to America. He himself had passed through the aforementioned Statue of Liberty, through, through Ellis Island, and he was walking on the uh, Lee Valley Railroad tracks into New Jersey. He was literally walking on the tracks. And an agent stopped him and warned him that he would have to get off of the tracks or a train would hit him or he could be arrested for trespassing. And this immigrant, fatigued and tired of foot, showed this agent his ticket. And the ticket had to inform him. There was a mental block here. The the agent, rather, had to inform him that his ticket was a ticket to ride the train, not to walk it. And this immigrant allegedly danced a jig knowing that his ticket was a ticket to ride. Now, I don't know if he inspired the Beatles, you've got a ticket to ride. But I do know this, that the story of the gospel is that you don't have to keep walking and trudging along. That you are invited. And just as the Beatles say, hey, a ticket to ride is an invitation for play, fun, and laughter. And the Bible exceeds the Beatles. In fact, it says in Isaiah 40, the great prophet Isaiah says that we will mount up with wings like eagles. We are meant to ride and to soar, to have a lightness in life. The last thing I'll share with you is the thought that God has been pressing into me. Is Is life about getting in line or being in love? I'm not asking if you're single today or married, but too often we get pressed down in church and we think that this is about, that it's about religion. Man, I I tell you, the older I get, y'all, the more I realize why why there are atheists and why there are de-church people and why a lot of people don't want to come to worship on Sunday morning. I mean, I get it. And so often we think it's about get in line, get in line, do this, do this. It's really not. It's about being in love. And parents, you can raise your kids like this. You can bark at them, do your homework, brush your teeth, go to bed. But that's not going to work well for you. Now, you got to do that sometimes. But the goal in parenting is not just to say, hey, wee ones, hey, tiny tots, get in line. They are to, they are to know that, that they are loved, that you are in love with them. And the way we simplify our lives, the way we tackle some of these burdens when we come to Jesus he doesn't say come to me and I will give you work he says come to me and I'll give you rest would you bow our worship team is going to come up front as they make their way slowly we're going to ask you To, do, to take a few moments. Irrespective of what's happening around you, just for a moment, just to, just to think a little deeper than you have in a while. 
Are you overwhelmed, overextended, and worn out? What's your level of stress? Maybe like the characters in our sermon, maybe like Tom and Jill and Kyle, a a dentist, a a homemaker, a pastor who are at the end of themselves. Maybe you don't have a, a physical diagnosis from a doctor, but if you went in tomorrow, it wouldn't be good. I want to ask you this morning to really thoughtfully consider the invitation that Jesus gives. When this church started a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, we said that one of the things that we want to value is gospel enjoyment. That we were praying that there would be parties and love and laughter. That people would connect here and that would share life and that God will work in homes and hearts and bring people together and restore marriages and like the last verse of the Old Testament says that God would bring back the hearts of fathers to their children and children to their fathers and that we would enjoy the fact that this is really really good news and I ask you this morning to pray That when you come to church, that when you get in a small group, that when you read the Bible on your own, that when you interact with another Christian, that you would realize that the aim of Jesus is for you to find satisfaction in him and for him to produce a deep gladness within you. God, I pray that. Lord, I pray for weary souls for people that are really fatigued and really tired, for some relationships that are strained. I pray for our, literally for our brains, for our minds in a TGIF world of Twitter, Google, Instagram, and Facebook. And Lord, there is probably an unholy and unhealthy disproportion to how we sit and what we spend our time looking at and listening to. And Lord, I pray that today we would elevate that this wouldn't be a message of shame, that this would be an invitation to put down the heavy bag, the burdens that weigh us down. God, you are so good that you tell us to cast all of our cares on you, to do so because you care for us. God, I'm grateful for the joy that you're producing in me. Sometimes, like James says, I have to count it all joy in the midst of enduring a variety of trials. Many times over, Lord, I just have to sit at your feet and be reminded that there is an abundance of blessing. Lord, I pray you teach us about levity, about having a ticket to ride about being able to soar as eagles. Jesus, I thank you that we can worship you in your goodness now. In you we pray, amen.